Welcome to the Quick Talk Podcast with Joshua Latimer, where we discuss business, life, family, faith, struggle, fire, pain, and ultimately winning. It's time to take massive action. Look, I, I can't work harder on your life or business than you do. It's ultimately all on you. You know, God created all the food the birds would ever need, but he doesn't put it in their nest. You've got to go get it. 10 out of 10 people die. So how about doing something today that actually matters while you still can? Hey, my friends, welcome back to the Quick Talk Podcast. I got a special treat for you today. I am joined on the line by a good buddy of mine named Jonathan Potoshnik. You can... uh, not really spell his last name, but you probably have heard it before because he is the founder of two different companies, both doing over eight figures in revenue. And he didn't come from a silver spoon. He didn't go to Silicon Valley and raise a bunch of VC money. He started these businesses small and built them by hand and assembled a team and has done incredible things. He actually has a home service company. I think that operates out of Texas. It has you know hundreds of employees doing over 10 million a year in revenue. It's unbelievable. And he has a software company with the kind of the similar trajectory also doing eight figures. It's crazy. I can't wait to pick your brain. Jonathan, thanks for carving out some time. How are you, my friend? I'm great. Good to talk to you, Josh. Thanks for having me back. So in 15 seconds, tell us how to build an eight-figure business. Ready, go. (laughs) (laughs) Build an incredibly smart team and go find money. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Obviously. Yeah, there's there's no way to do that. That question. (laughs) I want to have a bajillion dollars, you know. Yeah. Um, But tell us a little bit of your background, your story. I know you've been on the show before, so you don't have to spend a ton of time. But how did you get into entrepreneurship when you started your lawn care business? Did you ever in your wildest dreams think that you'd be where you are today? Give us a little context. No, I basically I started and I probably have said this on your show. I started as a kid, like an eighth grader, wanting to make some money so I could buy cars. And then I I stayed in the business until my freshman year of college, got out of the lawn care business, never thought I'd ever be back in it. Like just thought that phase of life is over. And I was moving on to technology and some other things. And by fluke, I ended up back in the business around 2005. And I really wasn't even at that time wanting to get back into the business. It just sort of happened to me that I ended up in business, in the lawn care business again. I had some other things going at the time. And uh, because I now had this thing, I decided to build it. And I probably said this before on your show, my only goal at that time, I had, I mean, I've, I've always had big goals, but you never know if you can really achieve them. You have all these hopes like, oh, I'd like to eventually be in this position one day. I'd like to have this kind of company. Maybe I'd like to have these kind of cars or things or whatever. But you think about the future and you imagine what you want the future to look like, but you never really know if you can get there. You hope you can, but you don't even know how you're going to get there. You just hope you can and somehow it'll come together. And so that's where I was at. I didn't really know how to do it. I just had these hopes. So my initial goal for the lawn care business was a thousand clients in residential. And that, and really, it wasn't, that's not 100% true. My initial goal was I was going to build a commercial company. And then in about $400,000 in revenue, completely changed the, the game plan and decided to go residential. Once I decided to go residential, my goal was 1000 clients. And, uh, and I was marching towards that. And I guess you'd say it all worked out, we hit that and kept on going. But when it all got started, now I didn't have a perfectly clear goal. And I wasn't I mean, I didn't have a perfectly clear vision of how it was all going to come together or if it even could. What's fascinating to me is I've had the pleasure to hang out with you several times. We've had many conversations over the last few years. I mean, you are a very smart guy, right? But I feel like there's a lot of people out there that they're pretty smart. They're sharp people, but they they don't even come close to the types of results that you get. And there has to be some sort of distinguishing factor, you know, especially with residential lawn care. That's a, a, when, when I look at that business, it really, it feels kind of like a tough business. You know, it, it can be like a race to the bottom. It's more commoditized. And, but for you to scale something that big and you still own that company, it's wild mm-hmm. to me. I'm trying to figure out like, if you take two people who are equally intelligent and put them down the same path, only one out of a 10,000 people are going to come anywhere near what you've done. What are some of the things that you think you've done or decisions you've made that have given you the ability to grow such a huge automated beast of a company compared to everybody else? Three things come to get to mind. And one, all can be replicated. One, a lot of people replicate and the first one for me that was a shift was really starting to study marketing. Back then it was called still called this, but back then it was called direct response marketing. And that just opened my eyes to 
all kinds of things and how to build a company and how to back then what mattered was I knew how to go sell. Not that I was great. I don't know if I was great at it or not. I just, I knew how to go out and do selling face to face, but I didn't know how to get people to come to me. And that's really important in this day and age. It's absolutely imperative. And that turned out to be the secret part of the secret sauce of my lawn care business was I had to be able to attract just huge numbers of people to call us on the phone or send us an email or visit our website through marketing. So learning that was the foundational thing that changed my life. And I've used those skills and hired those skills ever since. The second thing, what I now believe to be the single, not the single most important thing. Well, let's say it this way. This is the single most important thing in terms of building a company is building the team. It's who you go get to be part of the company. And most companies are failing in this area for a couple of reasons. One, they're going too slow on this. And then the second one is that when they hire good people, they don't give them or allow them to earn enough trust where they really hand things over to that individual and let them run and be the individual they need to be or contribute to the organization, what they're capable of contributing. They essentially hold back those individuals. And then as soon as they start making more money and having more cash flow, they don't double down and invest further in team. They just go way too slow in this area. And so there are, it's, it's this constant fight of the, uh, the day in which you're finally going to burn out and flame out inside the business and you're going to lose your energy and motivation to go bigger and therefore you sort of settle. It's, a, it's this balance between getting to past that point, having escape velocity in terms of beating the moment in time when you're going to wear out and wear down. Um, and the way you beat that is through building the team. And, and companies and individuals are going way too slow in that area. And I still go too slow in that area, but I go a lot faster than most everybody else. And I'm still way too slow. And so that's huge. Until you get those hats off your head, life doesn't get better for you. Until you have the right people on the team, you solve every problem yourself. Until you have the right people on the team, you don't have the answers you need to get the breakthroughs you need that will get you and your company to the next level. And then the third one, and this is just unbelievably important, um, it's this is the one where in hindsight, I couldn't tell you what was happening. But now I'm looking back, I'm seeing some clues as to why maybe I made it to where I'm at and continue to be optimistic about where I'm going or where we're going as an organization. I think you're looking for shifts and trends. You're looking for that that wave or that trend or that thing that's taking place that you can ride. So I would use the example of a rising tide lifts all boats. So one of my favorite authors is this guy by the name of Richard Koch, and he's out of Europe, and he has a book. He has, I've read all – well, not all his books, but I've read a number of his books, and one of my favorite books is a book called The Star Principle. And in hindsight, I think that's a little bit of what's happened to me. Um, so let me go back to my rising tide lifts all boats concept. So let's say that you want to build your company, and you're going into a market. You're starting from scratch, and you're analyzing the market. So you, you're just now thinking about geographical areas you could serve. So you could go into a geographical area that maybe is up north or something of that sort, and that area is sort of fading, meaning businesses are moving away from that area. You're not really seeing a lot of new construction. There's nothing really exciting happening there. The young demographic isn't moving in. You're not seeing any of the new technology companies or any of the new types of companies that are emerging inside of our economy coming into those markets or even being started in those markets. And so that geographic area is flat or potentially declining, or maybe it's it's ever so much, it's growing ever so slowly right now, but you can totally see how in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be on a downward trajectory. It's going to be a declining market. Now contrast that to Austin, Texas, Salt Lake City, Utah, um, Boulder, Colorado, and I, I could go down a massive list of cities. Now, these cities are in massive growth phases right now. They're, the young group is moving there. Executives are moving there. They were pro Some of those names were on the list to be the Amazon headquarters. Um, they are growing markets. There's, uh, there's technology companies coming in. There's startups. There's everybody going into those markets. They might have good tax bases. There's lots of going on. Good lot going on. There's lots of new construction. Big setup. The question to you then is, if you could start your business and uh, you could do it anywhere you wanted, which market's going to be better? If you go into the Austin market as compared to, say, a market like I described, maybe up north that's flat or dying, where do you have the best chance of success? Yes, there's tons of competition in Austin, 
But there's so much construction, so much growth, so much everything. It's the rising tide lifts all boats. You could be kind of okay in that market. You're still going to sell work. You're still going to grow because there's so much you can't get it. People, people cannot find enough contractors to do the work. So what happened is, and I, so now think about that analogy as this you know, capturing a wave or a movement or being in the right place. So the Star Principle book argues that if you're going to start, really, it's all about investing. So I read the book from an investing standpoint. But you, when you own a company, you're investing in your company. So sort of imagine that if you are an investor or you're starting your company, and that means you are an investor in this entity that you're creating. If you start a company in a what you or invest in a company, you want to find one that is in a growth market, whether it's in, in the industry sector, whether it's a geographic area, whether it's whatever it is. And so the argument is you only invest in companies in growth sectors that are growing at a minimum of 10% a year or greater, and you really want it to be much greater. And the argument is that in analyzing the data of companies and investments, the ones that were started in very massive growth industries, growth sectors, growth whatever, massively out, their CEOs didn't even have to be better. They don't even have to be the best CEOs, but they tend to massively outperform all others. And it's not it wasn't so much about the person. There's absolutely an element of the right team and the right people, but it was very much about the market that they went into and it's about timing. And so now to give you some I know I'm getting I'm talking a lot here, but let me give you a couple couple ideas. So think about what happened to me in the lawn care business. I came into the market, I had a technology background and I knew how to build websites and I knew how to do I figured out how to do SEO. I built 40 something websites. So I captured a wave in the early days in my little market that happened to be a growing market, and I captured that wave, and I was doing the right marketing things, namely SEO when nobody else was doing it. So I captured the front of Google. I did pay-per-click ads when nobody in my market was doing it. I painted my trucks when hardly any residential companies had their trucks painted. Now, everybody's doing all these things now. And so thinking about the next chapter of this business, I'm looking for those waves. I'm looking for that next thing to ride. So I would, I would say one of many was SEO in that business. And then think about our, our uh, software company. We've ridden a number of waves here. We, were first, we, were, we generally are first to market on a lot of big things when it comes to technology. One of the waves I rode is we were, we were pretty much the first guys. And it wasn't even that long ago now because we just turned eight. We were pretty much the first guys in our market to be online. Everything else was desktop, and a lot of the there's still a lot of competitive software companies that are desktop to this day. So we rode the wave of the move of from desktop to online, and we were like your only option for a period of time. And so, does that make sense to you? Oh a lot yeah, of information. I have that is yeah. <laughs> I have a bunch a, of comments, questions, yeah. feedback, all kinds of stuff. Critical it's, principle right there, and and it wasn't. It's not a one time thing. It's it's not like oh you know you heard me say my thing about the lawn care business and the wave I rode for a few years at the very beginning, you're like, oh, well, crap, I missed it. I could never be this company. No, you're looking for that next wave and that next wave and the next wave. And you've got to keep, and I don't, you know, and, and I like to use the word wave because you can kind of have a visual to it, but it's, it's, there's a lot of words for what I'm, I'm there are a lot of different describers for what I'm talking about, but you're looking for that next trend, that next thing that's moving a market, that next big competitive advantage. And you want to hop on that thing. And you want to ride it. Amen. So to recap, based on my notes, because I'm over here scribbling, uh, when you take a guy who's obsessed with marketing, who is uh, aggressively building his team quickly, and he's paying attention to trends, really good stuff will happen. <laughs> but to go back to your first point of marketing, yep. uh, most really small businesses get confused when it comes to marketing and sales. Maybe they're very personable, they got a great personality, everybody loves them, and their business is small, but they're not understanding that they need to create massive deal flow so that they can go sell with the great personality, and their phone doesn't ring enough, right? Or they're working 20 or 30 hours a week, and they're just hoping that you know a little Facebook ad will help. It sounds to me like you you went really deep. You built 40 websites. You and, and not that I'm telling people go build 40 websites. It's you went deep yeah, and no, hit that's really hard. Today. Yep. Right. But you just you focus on deal flow. So you had way yep. more deal flow than you could even handle, which allows you to build your team scale, reinvest, buy equipment and do all the other things, right? That's exactly right. You know, and I would use another word, massive action. Like I generally look at a lot of companies and they are not taking massive action or they might feel like they're taking massive action because they're doing 30 different things, but they are not 
going really deep and going really fast and going really hard on three or four key marketing things or, or focusing on a piece of the business or getting that part of the business right before they go into the next part of the business. And that's where it happens. And so most companies feel like they're doing a lot, but then they're not really doing as much as they think they are as compared to their most savvy competitors. Well, people confuse being busy with being productive <laughs> and they're yeah. not the same thing. And yeah. so and, it's not that they're not working hard. They're just working no. hard on the wrong things in the wrong order. And that comes and that isn't doesn't come from even being lazy or or you know, doing anything wrong, oftentimes it simply comes from not knowing what to do. And so you're faced with, you, you couldn't maybe, you might not be able to verbalize it, but you're not just going to sit around because you're a super hardworking individual. You're, you are going to work your butt off. You're dedicated. You're going to figure this thing out. So you end up doing lots of things that sort of don't matter because you don't know the what you don't know what to do. And so it's, it's unbelievably important to get the answers and find the individuals and the people that have the answers so that you know what to do. And then when you take your work ethic and combine that with knowing what to do and what path to follow, that's how really good things happen. I went and bought those answers. So I didn't know what to do. And my business went, start, went from zero to 125,000. And then went from 125,000 to 250. And I know that sounds pretty good to some, but there's a bazillion people that have done that. That's not really that impressive. But I was going I was facing a situation where I didn't really know how to get it to go faster, especially as they got bigger. And I went and bought the answers. I got involved in business groups and I spent tons of money on marketing and I went and did some coaching things. I did all kinds of stuff and I bought those answers. And that's that allowed me to go really fast. And I, I do that same thing to this day. I'm in so, business groups. It's so awesome yeah. listening to that. Yep. And everybody I know that's a really high achiever is just fearlessly invest in their own education, their own network, all of that stuff. But when I talk to small companies, they're terrified. Like we have a, a course at Send Gym called the Sales and Marketing Super Course. It's really, really popular. It's got 15 different instructors that do over 50 million a year collectively in home services. And the only thing they're teaching is sales and marketing. And I tell people, I'm like, look, yes, all the systems matter. All these systems are important, but the foundational cornerstone for everything has to be marketing. That is it. That's step one. You, you can fix everything else easily easier if that problem solved. Um, but, you know, they're, they're really scared. They're gun shy to do it. I'm not sure why, because every episode where I interview someone like you, they're like, yep, be obsessed with marketing, completely go piece out of marketing. <laughs> and- I, I think I understand why. I think the why, who knows what, I mean, we all have different reasons. But I think part of the why is there's so much junk out there. There's just so much information that's not that good. So, you know, you have personally gone out and you've done it. You've built things, you've sold things. I've done it. There are a million people out there selling solutions and, and whether it be information or whatever it is, and they've not done it or they did it 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And the market, the world is totally different. Or they, they, they read a lot of books and they consumed a lot of courses or they, you know, I use Dan Kennedy though. He's not really, he's kind of out of, he sold his company years ago, but you know, I use him from 12 years ago when I started studying this and you'd have all these individuals that would just take all his stuff and then they'd repackage it and they'd sell it as their own ideas. And and those that, when you buy individual stuff like that, you end up getting burned more often than not. And so and then you get burned a couple times or your friends got burned. The why I think for many is they've heard those horror stories it's like I'm going to trade you $300 or $500 or whatever amount of money that's essentially coming straight out of my living expenses. And if this thing doesn't perform, what am I going to do? Like, because I've just lost that money. They need that thing to perform. And there's just so much bad information out there that it's, it's so easy to get burned. You get burned once or twice, you could throw the money in the game and you just think, you know, it's not worth it. And so it's just really hard to find the right people to listen to. I yeah. think that's a lot of what it is. Yeah, that that and another thing I say all the time is there's we don't have information overload. We have opinion overload <laughs> yep. with like Facebook groups and forums. There's all these keyboard warriors giving really bad advice, uh, you know, without the right context and all that. So th- that's all really true. Um, I guess uh, let's shift the conversation a little bit. So as people are ending this year. And maybe they're having moderate success, but they're not content. They're not totally happy. They're looking back at the good and the bad of this year, but they're getting ready to do their planning and their forward planning for 2019. I don't know if that's something you've already have done for Service Autopilot going into next year or if you do your planning yes. all you know, in the month of January. But for a small company, no. what are some things they can do um, to set themselves up to maybe get hyper-focused on the right areas? What are those areas? What are some tips, tricks, hacks, tactics uh, that they can do to plan out their 2019 to have a breakout explosive year. Okay. 
Boy, there's a ton we could talk about here. Um, I guess if you start at the top level, there's going to be two main drivers for what will probably equal a better year. I think it's going to be a smaller number of companies that would say a better year for me is doing revenue pretty close to what we did, but just cleaning up some things. There could be those individuals. I'm going to sort of speak to it from a different situation and say a better year for you means that you're going to grow the organization. And along the way, you hope to improve some things as well. And this is going to be true for for a company that did 100 grand in 2018 or a company that you know did 10 million. And so the two, two, the number one thing you're going to be thinking about is growing revenue, okay? And because that's going to grow the company. And so when you're thinking about growing revenue, and Josh, by all means, inter, inter, in, um, interrupt me here if you want me to kind of go in a different direction. But let me let me lay out the just sort of top level here. You've got to if you if your goal is to grow revenue, then you've got a couple possibilities. You know this. You you can go out and get new clients. Or you can build what's called expansion revenue and a couple ways to do that. Expansion revenue simply means you're going to make the dollar value of a client worth more. So if in 2018 your, your client was worth 1000 how can we make my, your average client worth 1200 this year? And you can, you can make them worth more by two, one of two things, selling them more. They buy more services from you that they need and will give them an even better experience with you and will make them even happier. Or you can extend how long they say, stay with you. So a lot of companies will will churn or uh, or there will be attrition in your business where they leave you for a variety of reasons. If you can even extend how long they stay, then that allows you to grow the revenue of your organization as well. And so you want to think about those things. That's the, the top level. Yeah, that's the low-hanging fruit. You know, get new yeah. clients, more money from your current clients. Yep. And another one I've heard Dan, Jay Abraham talk about is just frequency. Um, increase that's the, frequency. the same as expansion. Okay. Yeah, the frequency. Yep. That's growing the dollar value. So, so within growing the expansion revenue, you can sell them more. You can raise prices. Or you can and sell them more uh, services, or you can have them perform more transactions. So, you know, in the lawn care world, it would be going from biweekly mowing to weekly. In the cleaning world, it would be going from two strip and waxes a year to four strip and waxes a year. Those exactly what you said, Josh. The transactions. So the reason I start here, if if because this is what everybody wants, we want to grow our business. So you you if you start at that level, then you can break this thing down. You say, okay. How can I move the lever on getting new clients? Because that's one bucket. And then how can I move the lever on growing the value of each client? As you said, selling them more frequently, more transactions or raising the prices, which is what many, many companies should do because prices for many things are going up next year. Like, for example, chemicals. And we know a bunch of things are about to go up starting next year. So you might need to do some price adjustments just to keep up with uh, where you're at right now in terms of profits. And so if you imagine... What are those steps I could do to get more clients? And what are those steps I could do to sell my clients more? And then you start backing into this plan. And then you, you boy, this is where we could talk for hours. But the other thing you've got to think about is what are the risk factors to all of my plans? I can tell you the number one risk factor. It's that you won't find enough team members. So if you want to think about the highest probability of hitting your goal next year, it's going to be predicated on a couple actions. One, figuring out your revenue plan to go sell more revenue. That's going to that's going to get into marketing. We'll come right back to that. And the other one is figure out your recruiting plan. Where are you going to start recruiting and advertising and marketing for team members? And then based on how fast you think you might grow, there's a little bit of prediction as to when might I need some of these team members throughout the year. So if you think I probably will need two new individuals around April, okay, back up from that. When are you going to have to start recruiting for them? Think back to how long and how hard it's been to find team members. Because here's what happens. We tell ourselves these great stories about how next year is going to be better. And this winter, we're going to work on our businesses. And then winter arrives, we're so exhausted. We sort of work on the businesses, but we don't keep our foot on the gas. And so coming out of the year, it's still that last minute rush. Like, oh, crap, I got to get door hangers out. Oh, no, I need to put together my digital Facebook marketing campaign. And you're just rushing around. And then then you start getting work. You're like, oh, great, crap. Now I got to hire employees. And that's <laughs> so gonna, and like, it's just this constant thing. It's like, OK, I got employees. But wait, now like I need to try. It's probably not this dramatic, but now I need a truck and equipment or oh crap. I forgot my equipment is like ragged. I need new equipment. And so it's always this reaction. And so then what happens is everything just keeps hitting these walls, one wall after another. You know, you got some new yards, new accounts, new whatever cleaning accounts, and you hit the wall of not having enough people to do the work. And so you build this backlog. You cut your marketing. 
because you've got too big of a backlog and people are frustrated. Then you start to you work down the backlog of work and it's like, oh, crap. Now my backlog's light. Turn back on the marketing. It's just this vicious cycle. And yep. then about June or April, or I'm sorry, June, July or August, you say, well, shoot, I really need to add another crew, but it's going to be winter soon or it's going to be the season's going to be winding down or whatever. So we'll do that next year. And it's the same game every year. It's just a little bit of growth every year. Uh, it's, so, it's like people are surprised when their planning actually works you know, on the marketing side. Yep. And then they yeah. also don't understand that uh, – you know, capacity, you know, team members and equipment and whatever, having the ability to fulfill or do X amount of revenue is a huge piece of it. Um, I also think I'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, with the fact that unemployment's low, the economy is crushing it. It's harder to yep. find people. A little Craigslist post ain't going to get it done. What I personally recommend people to do, and you can beat up, you know, or get, add your thoughts or whatever, is I, I tell people they have to become headhunters, um, and we have to go find these people. They're already working somewhere. They're at a retail job. They're at the gas station. Anybody with a great attitude that would be better off at the labor job with you that has more opportunity. But we have to become marketers for employees. We can't just put a job post that says, you know, must be drug-free, list 50 pounds, call now. Because it isn't working. We have to go get people aggressively. And I also recommend people recruit year-round regardless if they're hiring. They're interviewing all the time for these spots. What are your thoughts on how to handle you know, low unemployment or as some people describe it, like a labor shortage? What do you think? Everything you just said. I 100% agree. I think that the game is now being won by those that can outmarket for team members, not outmarket for work. Someday it might shift back. I have no idea when. Someday there will be a downturn, but right now, um, that's the game. Whoever's winning recruiting is winning in business, and so if if that's the game to be played, then that informs you. You have to take massive action, and you've got to do whatever you got to do to go out there and recruit and pound the pavement. So I want to I want to send you a T-shirt on. too. I have a T-shirt that says "Massive Imperfect Action" because another thing people do uh, is they good. they overthink everything and end up taking no action because they have this illusion, and then. Uh, I don't know. I still need to introduce you to my friend, Michael Kaplan. Uh, he calls his employees his internal customers. And I love that mm. because it, it yep. reframes everything about your team in terms of you, you literally are a marketer for your team. Uh, and I thought that phrase is amazing. And that's he had neat. a really large business in Minnesota. Um, but anyway, that's that's really good stuff. So that's good. Yeah. Th- those are the you keys. Just- to, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, just to piggyback again on what you said, just take all the marketing skills you've learned. And every time you're listening to a podcast or you're reading a book or anything around marketing, it's always slanted towards marketing for new clients. But just remember that every one of those things you're you're hearing and uh, and learning about marketing, figure out how to apply that to going out and finding your team, because that's really where it's at. And just be really aggressive. Like when you think about marketing, to get clients, you think about timing. When are they going to have need? Well, think about that when you're looking for a team. When you think about marketing, you're going to say, hey, where are the best clients? What neighborhoods do they live in? What apartment buildings do they live in? What what companies would be the ideal cl- companies to make my commercial clients? You're thinking about all that stuff. Think about that with your team. Where do a lot of your team members live? Where do they go to church? Where do they, you know, where might they be working now? Where might people be working that have family members that might be your team members? You just got to, you'd put door hangers out to get clients potentially, why not put out door hangers to get team members on apartment buildings and everywhere? You just have to do whatever it takes. Well, yeah, we look at customer acquisition costs, but we don't want to examine employee acquisition costs. In fact, I've never used that phrase, but why are we scared to invest money, time, effort, focus on getting rock stars that'll be with you for the next several years? I mean, you know, people say, oh, I can't afford an employee. It's like, what are you talking about? Employees are free. They make you money. There's a margin on an employee unless they're sitting there sweeping your shop and you can't sell jobs. But it's like yeah, employees you, are free. I mean, really, there, there's more to they're, unpack. There, they're all like little mini assets. Exactly. Like a, well, you gave the example of your friend's analogy about how you know your team is an internal customer, and that's a visual. I like visuals. So think about your team as assets. We we think about where do they go on your profit and loss statement? They go under cost of goods sold or as an overhead expense or whatever the kind. So we call them expenses, but they're they're not. <laughs> that's the problem. That goes back to the very beginning of my conversation. Like, what are the three secrets? Like, they're not even secrets, but what are the three winning strategies? One is go build that team, the right team of the right people as fast as you can. You, that's not because they're expenses. You never build expenses as fast as you can. You do that because they're <laughs> assets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are that's these a good incredible point. 
the, an awesome person will bring to you an entirely new way of looking at business in the world and getting clients and serving the client. They'll, they'll carry the ball when you're too tired to carry the ball and you've got somebody in your corner to brainstorm with and help you figure things out. And, and they're out there billing revenue and bringing revenue into the company. Like that is an asset. Yes. And if you can fill up your company with awesome assets, then you end up with a really interesting company that grows fast. And if you're very slow about adding quality assets to your portfolio, your company being your portfolio, then your company grows way slower. Like if you were in the real estate business and you, the way, how are you going to grow your real estate and income? You're going to go out and acquire assets, revenue producing properties, commercial or residential as quick, as quick as you can afford to do it. And if you drag your feet on acquiring the next residential or commercial real estate asset, then your company doesn't grow. And well, it's the same with the team. It's exactly like acquiring lots of little real estate properties. Like that's how you drive new revenue inside the company. And you've got to think that way. Well, you know, one of the the issues when I interview someone like you, I know you're just a guy, right? But you're so far beyond most people in terms of what they could comprehend of achieving that what they do is they start telling themselves excuses. They start basically becoming a victim or they say, well, that's Jonathan. You know, it's different for him. Or he he got in at the perfect time because people didn't understand SEO or AdWords yet. Lucky. Like they really misrepresent what you did or they think you made all perfect choices. Um, I know that you didn't. I know that you probably made some bad hires. I know that there's some bad things that can happen when you scale really quickly. You know, there's revenue oh, yeah. as a stress metric, right? Right? You, you hire an ops manager who screws everything up or something horrible happens or your employees stab you in the back. Um, bring us back to your human side and tell us some of the pain and suffering stories. And uh, what would you say to the little guy who, who just thinks you're some magical unicorn? How can we convince him that that's not the case at all? So let me rewind even further. All right. So I grew up super middle class. My dad's an artist. I don't know anybody that's ever built a company before. I have no relatives that ever have ever built a company before, other than my dad is an artist. I don't know anybody. I never knew anybody growing up that was super successful. My worldview is if I could just make $90,000 a year, I'd be living at the top of the food chain of life, which is so not true, actually. I mean, it's fantastic, but it's such a small view of the world. Um, I graduated in a high school class of 92 people. Because my dad's an artist, we lived in the country. Uh, like 10 miles away from everything because and on land because my dad's an artist and he loved that environment. I wasn't in a suburban neighborhood. I didn't, I, I didn't go into town every day. The only way I got my lawn mowing business going is because my mom was kind as a stay at home mom. And she was kind enough to drive me into the, into town in our Dodge caravan minivan and drop me off with my mowing equipment <laughs> and then pick me up later in the day. That's so awesome. And, and, yeah. Like, and that, that experience changed my mind. So there was no, like nobody ever gave me a dollar. I mean, I, this to, to even make it sound though, like, like I didn't have any benefits was just completely untrue because I also had parents that would totally support me, totally let me go try things. My dad helped me design my first flyer for my lawn mowing business. And of course they'd answer my questions. Like they were great in all those ways, but I'm just trying to make the point. Like, Nobody gave me a bunch of money. Nobody said, here's exactly how you do it. There was no YouTube video to go watch. There was no book to go buy. And the only reason I say that is not to say, oh, well, look at me. I did it. My point is, like, if you feel like you don't have an advantage, like half of the really interesting people actually didn't have the advantages. And that's why they're interesting. They had to go figure it out. They had to fight it out. And so then along the way, you know, building this stuff. It was not a straight path. You know, my first software company in 2001 with my business partner, who's now my business partner, Service Autopilot, we didn't make it. We were working on a problem that was really hard, a map-based system before there was Google Earth. And we, mm. we just couldn't finish that last little piece. And that business ultimately had to wind it down after I, I'd saved $100,000, which I know is very unusual. And it's going to sound like I you know, had this advantage, but I saved every dollar I made from 14 years old until my freshman year of college, I put it all in the bank. And uh, and I spent all of it living, funding our software company and uh, living because I had, uh, when I was 24, I had two little kids and my, we chose, our life would be, my wife would stay home and raise our kids at, you know, with it just, we were, we just made that choice. And so we spent everything building that business and living with no income. And then it's like, when that thing went under, like now what? And so then I, you know, went out and started building a technology consulting business to live. And then I got in the 
the lawn care business and the lawn care business was horrendous. I hated every moment of it. The, and the only reason I stayed in the lawn care business, I built it up to about $400,000 making no money, miserable in every possible way while I was also doing tech consulting. And the only reason that my business exists today is because a guy said to me, if you don't like it, why do you have to do it that way? Or if you don't like it, don't do it. Because really, my recollection is, it's probably a little revisionist history, but my recollection was it was that simple. And from that, I said, you know, why am I doing this? I'm at least, I'm making money doing programming on the consulting. And so, and I was, uh, and I was starting to make a little bit of money in the cleaning industry. And so I uh, went and let all the clients go, except the best clients, let all the team members go except for three and I ended up now with this lawn mowing business that actually looked like it had potential. And from that, that was out of that was born the next iteration of lawn care businesses, which is what I own today. And my point there is that that was a horrible ride. It was miserable. And I mean, I could just keep naming the stuff like that's happened. We we were brought in. One of my consulting clients brought us in on this uh, what had was a very, very promising healthcare software solution. We delivered everything. We built the technology. I delivered the initial marketing. We did everything, but the partners were totally wrong, just 100% wrong. And and, uh, and so we ultimately gave back all of our equity and walked away from that deal after spending almost two years on that thing. And and so I can just go down the list, and there's more. <laughs> I, I know anyway, there's but, more. I know it. I know it. I just, just you know, I, I want to remind showing people. Up. Yeah, you just keep showing up, and you go spend the money to – Go, go make the friends, go get to know people. And I don't know how else to put it. It's just, you got to stay in the game and you got to stay in the game long enough to give yourself a chance of winning. Well, yeah, most people quit the band right before they get the record deal. And it takes time to, to, to build something significant. I mean, usually the last 10% of any project takes as much effort as the first 90. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that is, but historically on the podcast, I'm a very nice guy. I'm very encouraging. I'm like, you can do it, guys. I believe in you. And I do. But, you know, the last couple of weeks, Jonathan, I've been getting a little more fiery because I'm starting to get frustrated with people making excuses when really they just need to go make decisions. I did a podcast on don't try to make perfect decisions, just make decisions in the first place. Make a decision, stick with it, build trust in yourself, have a bad outcome, learn from it. You have to do it. You, there's no shortcut to the, to, the, to the path. Just get through the path, right? My dad, when I started my company, he said, uh, Josh, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail. And I said, well, I better get my first nine out of the way as quick as possible then. <laughs> So I'm still young yep. when I get to number 10. And uh, maybe we have a, a taste for punishment that other people don't. But all you got to do is, is do the hard things, take massive imperfect action, and go for it. Um, with that being said, you're living the dream now, which is like, you know, everybody sees the wine, but no one sees the crushing of the grapes. <laughs> Another yep. One of my favorite quotes. Um, yep. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like now and specifically uh, family systems. So I had a lot of people email me because I brought up this idea of family systems. Me and my wife have all kinds of systems, like tons of them. Um, we're just huge on family culture. You know, what if we could go back into a time when your family name meant something? You know, mm -hmm. where as a man, you're, you, you know, there used to be this idea that there's a family crest and like your mm -hmm. name, like your family name was huge. People would die to protect the integrity of their name. And now you got people eating Tide Pods on Instagram and our culture shifted a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but like, Interesting. You, yep. would, you would give this dowry for a woman who you would marry, protect and die for. And you would raise kids and you teach them honor and all this stuff. And it to me is, is so epic when I think about that stuff. And so we try to instill some of those things into our kids you know we have like the Latimer birthright we have you know the Latimer of the month we have this manifesto that they read we have like that we even have our own family swag t-shirts and stuff um, what are some things what are your thoughts on that first of all because we were nerding out about this a couple weeks ago when we talked and uh, tell us about your kids kind of what you're doing what your parenting philosophies are as an entrepreneurial family and what's different about how you do it compared to you know quote unquote sure. normal people would do it okay yeah. First, I'm going to preface it with it's sort of like talking about your business successes. And, you know, it can all sound wonderful from the outside. Oh, wow, it must have gone great and been easy, but it's not that way. So, you know, it's I'm sure that you would say the same. Like, it's easy to 
talk a good game and, and, and you, you have 10 minutes to talk about a subject. So everything's going to sound like, Oh, it's been glorious and perfect and easy for you guys, but that's not really how it's been. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, we, I have along the way built a bunch of businesses and we've had all kinds of things in life and beautiful chaos happens. Beautiful yeah. chaos. And so, yeah. and you do your best to try to keep showing up every day. And, you know, I, I will say that one of the great things about me having to do podcasts and stand on the stage and speak to tons of people and teach, all of our academy members and talk to academy members and work with academy members is it holds me highly accountable because I'm a hypocrite if I don't live what I say. And when I'm talking about the best practice, sometimes I'm sitting there thinking to myself, holy crap, am I still doing that best practice that I'm talking about and telling somebody else, maybe you should do this. So I want to preface it all with that. It's like what you do is you kind of you go down a road where you're trying to live it and do it and you kind of screw it up and you're like, you, you get, you get kind of called out in your head and you're like, wait, I'm not totally living this thing. You course correct. And you try to get back on crest on course. And that's just what life is. And that's what business is. That's whatever it all is. And so I have to course correct. So I don't want to put any like perfection out there. Cause that is not reality. So, you know, a couple things to kind of rattle off. Um, so when Tiffany and I, my wife and I, uh, when we got married, we had some things that were important to us. One of which is not possible for many. And that is for us, we just wanted her to be able to stay home. And, and so, um, she, we sort of, in a sense, even back then sort of divided up the world and I was going to kind of work on my business stuff. She was going to take care of the house. That doesn't mean I opted out of getting to do fun things at home, like clean the dishes every night, which I still do to this day, every single night. But, we sort of divided up a lot of the tasks, but we, we decided that there were going to be certain things we kept doing. And this is a long time ago now. And one of them was eating to dinner together every night as a family. Another was that Tiffany and I, and we were very fortunate to find my, for my mom to watch our kids or to have find, be able to find babysitters that we trusted. We went out almost every weekend. It doesn't mean we had a lot of money to go spend on going out. Um, but in hindsight, the eating dinner together as a family, not in front of the TV, um, the, the going, Tiffany and I going out for date nights every so often, again, you know, it was limited money going away just for a long weekend. Even if it means you get in the car, like some of those little things are just critically important. Having a united front as parents versus letting the kids run the show or divide and conquer, uh, yeah, divide Tiffany and I, and they go after and try to negotiate with one parent to win the battle and remembering mom and dad are on the same team at the end of the day. And we have to be a united front. Um, like there's lots of little things like that, that had played a huge role, not working on Friday or Saturday nights. Like there were times I clearly had to do that. There was a million times where I felt like I needed to work all weekend, but Tiffany really helped challenge me and say, Hey, wait a second. This is what we said we were going to do. And, and in a sense, you know, a good marriage, I mean, Tiffany, I joke, we don't always do this to each other, but a good marriage is one where you build the other person up when one person's weak. Like imagine you're eating sugar, like you're trying not to eat sugar or you're trying to cut down on drinking alcohol or something like that, there's some little goal you have. Does one, do do you bring up the other spouse or does one spouse go eat sugar and the other spouse is like, well, crap, if you're going to do it, then I am too. You know, it's that kind of thing. Are you building each other up and holding, helping the next person, the, your, your spouse, get the thing that they want to achieve and become the person they want to achieve? And so there would be plenty of weekends where I'd like, oh, I got to work Friday night. She's like, wait a second. You, you know, this is not what we said we were going to do. And so, it made me, I worked a lot, but it made me not work on generally Friday and Saturday nights. I generally didn't work on Sundays until evening, getting ready for the next Monday. And those things at the end, they really added up. Um, every, pretty much every night of my boys' lives when they were little, for years and years, I'd lay down and say goodnight to them, tell them stories, like do those kind of things. And, you know, that was stuff I didn't necessarily feel like I had time to do a lot, but I did it. And I look back on it now. And my goodness, I wouldn't trade any of that. I got plenty of other stuff wrong, but just there's lots of little things like that. And so then as our kids get older, we live in an incredibly fortunate financial situation. And so, I mean, the, the world that my kids have access to or see is just nothing like the realm that I lived in. It's, it's like... Yeah, that, that, that. Pre presents and, some other types of challenges for a whole yeah. other conversation because right, yeah, and yeah. also I'll just mention one real quick. Like, just think about you know, as you one one word of encouragement if you're building a company, think about the example you're being. Like right there in and of itself, that is an unbelievable gift you're giving your kids in terms of what they will think is possible, um, what what is available to them. The, the idea that they can go create and build and do whatever they want to do, and they don't have to follow any preset game plan, that's a gift. 
And so another one is as your financial world, maybe your financial world's incredible now, maybe it becomes incredible. Then you have to start thinking about things like, how did I get here? I got here because of all those business challenges, all that junk I had to deal with when I was a kid, all the things I didn't have wasn't, weren't given to me, all the problems that I had to figure out a solution to or, to or have the hard conversations. Nobody bailed me out. And so if you once your financial world becomes good, my operating theory is that if you bail your kids out because you don't want them to have the same struggles and frustrations and challenges and pain and uncomfortable conversations and heartache that you had, you are doing your kids a massive disservice because they won't become who you've had to become to get to where you're at. So we're making our kids buy their own cars. We're helping them figure out how to start businesses. We're, I'm doing – my oldest son, we took him out of call, uh, high school, crafted the entire rest of his education to get him to where he wants to go because he knows what he wants to do. Like how can you be that parent to your kids? Not hand it to them. Make them do all the work but give them the unique opportunities that are possible because of the world you live in and, and help facilitate that with your kids. So, man, we could talk forever, but those are some of the things I'm thinking about. It's so awesome. And I want my kids to have the most massive unfair advantage in the world compared to other kids. Absolutely. Now, not by and, me giving them money, but by me changing their mindset, their belief system, exactly. the way they filter the, the world around them. Everywhere we go, we're talking about value creation and this and that. And why do you think people do that? Or this kid at school did a bad thing. Why do you, like, I wonder why that kid would think that that was a good idea. And we just talk about yep. all that. My uh, oldest is only 11, but we're talking about the car situation. And they all know I'm not buying him a car. It's not going to happen, yep. period. And I told him, I said, I know you're only, he'll be 12 in a couple months. I said, you're not really thinking about it right now, but I promise you when you're 16, you're going to desire the freedom to go get in your car and go see your friends or go do something. And you won't be able to do that if we don't build a plan right now, because a car is a lot of money and your earning potential when you're 11 is not that big. So we need to get on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but yep. like they really get it. They get it. And we have these conversations and I almost feel bad for other families that don't do this stuff because it's ridiculously powerful. It's unbelievable. My son Maverick wanted to play Fortnite with his friends, which is a video game. And yep. and I had him send me, well, he had been studying persuasion. So as he studies different topics, I'll give him X amount of minutes of game time based on X amount of minutes of research and something he's learning that's actually valuable for his life. And he just, out of the blue, sent me this 10-minute long, I should play the audio out of it on my podcast sometime, but talk about persuasion and consensus and the gratitude mm. effect and reciprocity and all these principles and stuff. And, like, he's having these light bulbs. And, like, as he's making the video, he's like, oh, this is my favorite one, you know, consensus. because <laughs> And he's, like, getting fired up. And he's, he's so little. I was so that's proud awesome. of him. But that's, that's awesome. amazing. And can I ask you one more thing before I let sure. you go? And then yeah. you can have any closing thoughts you want. One of my goals next year is to buy a really fancy car, okay? Mm. Never bought a new car because it seems like a horrible, stupid, dumb idea. I'll buy a couple-year-old car. I think my truck is mm -hmm. actually a 2014. I bought it in 2016 or something. But I'm looking at a Corvette. I've always wanted a Stingray Corvette. Now, I have no idea your opinion on Corvettes, but I know that you have some super ninja tricks on the way that you buy cars. You're huge into cars. I'm just starting to maybe kind of want to learn a little bit. But you buy some of these supercars, and they cost you next to nothing. I know you use corporations to, to do stuff. Could you share some of the tips and tricks on how you're doing that? I know it's a hobby, and not everyone will relate to it, but I think it's really, really interesting. So I don't really do it with a corporation. Um, so a couple things to rewind. I would highly suggest that if you're buying any type of super high-end car, um, so a Corvette would be at the beginning stages of – it's not exotic per se, but you're starting to – Like a $100,000 car would be like the starting again? place. I misunderstood right? you. Like a $100,000 car, right? Yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah. But the, so you know, just to speak to the Corvette, um, the Corvette's kind of that car that you can drive. I put the Corvette and the Porsche in the same category. It's that car that you can drive that's not going to cost you a lot of money to drive the car. There's a big market to resell it. And on top of that, you're just not going to have many problems with it. It's not going to be super expensive to maintain it. Um, as soon as you get into some of the very high-end cars, I mean, like you could be looking at one thing goes bad, and you're looking at it. I got I'm like one of my really good friends. He just um, he just had two little minor things with his McLaren. It's fifteen thousand bucks, <laughs> and so you're not generally facing that on a on a vet or a Porsche. 
And so that's a very good, what I would call the sweet spot. I'll also compare, like you take the vet, I'll answer your bigger question in a moment, but take the vet. I'm like, you're going to spend X amount of money on that thing. And you could jump up to a Ferrari 488 and you're going to spend 260 right now on that car potentially. And the incremental difference between the vet and the Ferrari is not worth approaching 200,000 more dollars, like just in terms of how fast it's going to go or anything like that. And that Ferrari is going to cost you so much more money in every possible way. So I think the vet and the Porsche tend to be a sweet spot. Now, if you've dreamed of having all these other exotic cars and that's like you built your businesses to get there and you saved all your money and you can afford to do it, then you may just have to do it to accomplish your goal or because it's your thing. Like it's kind of my thing, but the, uh, the, to encourage you, I think the vet or a 911 or something like that is an absolute sweet spot in terms of value for your money. So then in terms of your other question, um, I don't really do anything with corporations. What I do is if you buy super high-end cars, so I'm talking about, I mean, it could be anything. It, like, you just name some stuff. It could be like an, like an Audi GT, R8 right? or something. Audi R8, a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, a McLaren. It could be a Bentley Continental GT, any of these kinds of cars. It could be uh, some of the high-end Porsche, like a GT3. Um, even Actually, no, I'll, give you, I'll use an example of a lower-end car that I had. So I had a Porsche um, 911 4S, and it had a GT3 body kit on it. It looked like a GT3, but it wasn't. And so I only paid fifty. $8,000 for that car. I drove it 10,000 miles and I didn't, I did, it wasn't free, but I had the car for approaching two years and I sold it for 54 something. And so let's just say I had a $3,000 in this car that I drove for 24 months, hypothetically. So if you divide the 24 months against 3000, it cost me just over a hundred dollars a month to drive that car. And I was driving a very nice Porsche. It was awesome. I love that car. And so my, that's what you can get And that's not an example of a super high end car. And so that's where I'm kind of contrasting it to the vet, the whole game. It's the same saying as the car game is exactly like the real estate game in that you don't make your money when you sell, you make your money when you buy. Now you're going to make money on your cars, but it's all about buying the car, right? So you start imagining you want a vet or a Ferrari or whatever, and you get all excited about this thing. And then you see the deals in the market like, oh, my gosh, this is the deal. I got to get this one. There's always another deal. And every and these these cars, like if you really go high end, like Ferraris and Lamborghinis, they don't sell fast. They sit on the market for a really long time. There's not that many people that could write a $220,000 check for a car that they're going to put 1,500 miles a year on. It's going to predominantly sit in their garage. And so if you buy that car right and you're incredibly patient, then the game is – that you can buy that car and you can generally drive it for about a year and then you want to flip that car. Sometimes if you didn't buy it quite right, you need to sell it within six months. And so the, the game I'm playing is not so much with, um, with uh, corporations. It's that in the state of Texas, and this will be true for many states, we are hit with the sales tax. Um, and so what happens is I have to pay six and a quarter percent of sales tax on every car. So if I go out and buy a $200,000 car, I'm looking at a $13,000 tax bill. So if you spend $200,000 on your car and then you pay $13,000 in tax, you have to, when you sell that car, you have to sell it for $13,000 more than you bought it for and to break even. And that's, and then imagine you hold it for a year and there's normal depreciation. A lot of the exotics, you can generally budget at least $10,000 a year in depreciation plus some potential mileage depreciation. So you have to overcome the, the typical depreciation plus the sales tax. So in my fictitious example, you're running at $23,000 on that thing for a year. It's almost impossible to buy a car so cheap that a year from now you could sell it for 23000 more than you bought it for. So if you're in a state where you have to overcome the sales tax, then it's absolutely imperative that you find a broker or somebody you can work with to run all your car deals through them so they can hold your sales tax credits. And that's a whole longer conversation. It's a sales tax. I wonder if you could I'm do doing. it with a corporation, though, so you don't sell the car, you sell the company that owns the car. I don't know if that's a thing or not. <clears throat> But I don't know. We don't There's have to a, get in the weeds on yeah, it. Yeah, I, I couldn't say for sure, and every state's going to be different. So, yeah. So, the, th- one of the reasons the I wanted to ask you this, Jonathan, uh-huh. was because I thought it was so funny when I first met you in Oklahoma a few years ago how even a hobby, which is really what this is, or a passion, even yep. you're even viewing that. Uh, in the way of an investor, of an affluent person. Now, all the the small broken stock companies out there, a lot of these guys are driving brand new F-250 King Ranches. They have humongous car payments. <laughs> They're doing everything wrong. And when I look back at people that, that have real wealth, 
they're doing they're doing the opposite things, right? So like someone that makes a hundred thousand in personal income and they buy a fifty thousand dollar car, honestly, that's kind of normal. It's really dumb, but it's normal. But then these people like you who are doing these things, you're driving your Porsche, but you're making sure it's like a hundred dollar a month hobby. I just think it's really, really fascinating <laughs> to the way that you look at it, and it speaks to your greater mindset. I think. Yeah, I, that's an, that's a very good point. And so, I that's another general theory of mine is the things that you have to do to get you to where you want to be, and like I think that way in everything, and, and and so you eventually don't get to some level of money or wealth where it's like you know you could buy a brand new one of these cars every year and throw it away, and it doesn't even matter. I mean, you know, you don't. That's an extreme example of like being very successful, but you don't generally find people. They suddenly wake up one day, like really successful people that sort of did on their own and didn't inherit it. They don't wake up. Generally, they don't work for 20 years getting to where they want to be. And then one day wake up it's like, oh, well, I'm banking X amount of money a year. I got this amount of wealth. Just screw it. I'm just going to start blowing money. That's just not because you've wired yourself for 20 years to do the right things to get to a place or 10 years or whatever it is. And you don't just turn off that switch. And if you do, I think there's some risk factors because then you start operating incorrectly inside your organization as well. The way you keep building your thing and getting to the next level is to continue to operate that way. And, and I, I did that make sense? It's beautiful. It was a beautiful way to end. This was a really, really interesting episode. Super grateful for your time. You're such an incredible guy, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thanks, How can Josh. people, if they're looking for a supercharged, high-powered, massive uh, automation feature, CRM – uh, tell us about Service Autopilot or how they can connect with you in general. Yeah, so it's Service Autopilot. I'm incredibly passionate about it. It's my baby at the end of the day. I believe in it to my core. Um, 100% all in on this thing. And we're we're starting to finally execute on the vision that we had way back when we dreamed of building the system, which is why we called it Autopilot. In November of this year, like as in a month ago, uh, we announced our automation system to the public and our automation systems is an insanely uh, it's got this insane ROI. So think of a problem you've got. You've got a collections problem. You've got a marketing problem. You want to get all your, your biweekly clients to become weekly. You've got a, uh, you want to all your clients that buy this one service, they should be buying this other service. You've got your employees aren't following up on estimates. You've got to do's in your company that have been signed to your team, but they never get done. Nobody knows they didn't get done. So balls are being dropped inside the organization. Fires are burning. Automations is this means of automating all these activities throughout your organization. So there's all kinds of marketing automation software out there, but there isn't full business automation software out there like what we have tied back into all your billing, all your to do's, your calls, your your upsells, your marketing, your accounting, your your credit card charging, everything. Automations is tied to everything. So, you know, it's just unbelievably, I mean, all you got to do is solve one little problem. If like, if your team just actually makes two more phone calls next month that sells another job, <laughs> one more job, like you get a 50% conversion, the thing's paid for. And every additional little thing, like finally somebody, when somebody opened an estimate, a client opened an estimate, your salesperson called them or you collected the money you would have never collected. I could rattle off a bazillion little things that could happen in your business. Like, it's all just free money. That's the beauty of automation. Like you would normally have to go spend forty, fifty thousand dollars to bring somebody on your team that could execute on this stuff, that could manage all this stuff, and you can just go get technology to do it today. We live in this most unbelievable time, and it's only going to get better. Like we are barely scratching the surface of where we're going. So, Service Autopilot is very much becoming the original vision and automation system, and it's we're, it's just the beginning of where we're going. Like it's such a small glimpse of what's coming from us. And it's that this is how little companies get big. This is how little guys gain an unfair advantage over everybody else this is how big guys continue to dominate, take market share from everyone else. It's all through automation. And that's what we're building. So and I didn't even talk about all the other stuff. Can you say that again, except be passionate this time? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I just this is like it's just insane. Like I, I this whole thing started because I looked at the market and said, oh, my gosh, there's nothing in the market that's going to get my businesses to where I want to go. And I don't see it coming. And I look at the market now, we have some pretty dang good competitors, but I don't see anybody going in the direction we're going. I don't see them creating the future we're creating. And I just can't be more passionate about because I have to live this stuff day in and day out. I have, you know, between the two companies, 300 plus employees that, you know, that we, we all have to execute day in and day out. And, it, and we're, it's not a world of just individuals executing. Now, individuals have to be empowered with technology. Technology has to augment their jobs. 
And man, if you don't have that, you are going to get your lunch handed to you in the next five to 10 years. You're going to get destroyed. Yeah. I've been telling people it's a home service gold rush. The opportunity is huge, but for people asleep at the wheel, they're going to get absolutely steamrolled by that's look, there's a lot of young people coming up building million dollar companies in three, four years out of the blue. Boom. And then you have all these people that have been in business for 15, 20 years, family owned business. They're just going to get crushed. They don't understand what's happening. It's exactly what I did. I came in and applied technology through marketing to the lawn care industry. And like when we started, True Green Land Care was a, our, one of our biggest competitors on residential. They don't even exist in our market anymore. I can, I can name all these companies that aren't even around anymore that they were the big names. Like, how do you ever break into this market? Well, the, the young guys are coming and breaking in because they're savvy on these things. Like using technology is a no-brainer to them. That, and, and I yeah. cut you off, but you're dead on. That's exactly what's going to well, happen. You- the savvy uh, young business owner, but also customers are trained to buy differently now. That's they want the point. text message with the payment link. They want the automated whatever. Like everything shifting. Like young people, people like to make fun of millennials. Well, guess what? They're buying McMansions now. They're starting to build wealth. They're becoming your customers. And when you're doing handwritten estimates and doing all the old-fashioned stuff, it's not going to translate very well. But anyway, we could talk forever. I appreciate your time. Yeah, By the way, Send Jim is going to be integrating with Service Autopilot. It's in beta, so we're excited about about that yeah well let's just say it it has integrated with service autopilot we have a bunch of beta clients using it that love it beta members we call our clients members they love it they love the integration with automations and send gym they're super excited about it and so to just to clarify josh it's going public early at the very beginning of the year so um yeah it's a big exciting deal. stuff super exciting total automation automatic neighbor mailings automatic ringless voicemails reminding them to do a fall cleanup six months after your thing. There's, it's, it's really endless. Uh, but go to serviceautopilot.com. Check that out. Jonathan, hope you have a great rest of your year. Merry Christmas. And Same we'll talk to you. you very soon. Thanks, Josh. See you later. Hey, thanks for hanging out, friends. And from all of us here at the Quick Talk Podcast team, we hope you love today's show. We hope that you were inspired to become a doer and not just a listener. Apply what you've heard today in your own business and watch things change for the better. Lastly, remember that all the money in the world can't save your soul. Seek first the kingdom of God, my friends. We'll see you next time. For more information about the Quick Talk Podcast or Joshua's other businesses, visit our website, quicktalkpodcast.com. Have a blessed day.